Our scripture passage this morning is John chapter 21. We found in the Pew Bible on page 1687. John chapter 21. Pew Bible, page 1687. Turn there. Let's pray for God to bless the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, enlighten us by your spirit that we may see in these words the love of Christ for his people and our call to follow after him and praise him all our days. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. John chapter 21. Afterward, Jesus appeared again to his disciples by the sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Cana in Galilee, the sons of Zebedee and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize that it was Jesus. He called out to them, Friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, Throw your net on the right side of the boat, and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. And the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed the board and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things, you know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted but when you are old, you will stretch out your hands, and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, Follow me. Peter turned and saw that the disciple whom Jesus loved was following them. This was the one who had leaned back against Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he asked, Lord, what about him? Jesus answered, If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. 
Because of this, the rumor spread among the brothers that this disciple would not die. But Jesus did not say that he would not die. He only said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? This is the disciple who testified to these things and who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true. Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. This father reading of God's holy word, may he bless to the hands, hearts, and minds of his people. Uh, September 16th, 2016, one of the first Sundays that I preached for you at Cottage Grove, I told you that I planned on preaching through the gospel of John. Four years later, here we are, finally wrapping it up. And the next book I'm doing is Genesis, and that has many more chapters than John, so buckle up. <laughs> Some people have commented that John chapter 21 is much like what we would call an epilogue in a chapter book. You know, there's a prologue and there's an epilogue. John's prologue is that first part of chapter 1. In the beginning was the word. But John chapter 20 ends in such a way, Jesus did many of the miraculous signs, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. If I believe in you, you may have life in his name. That some have pondered whether John chapter 21 was written by someone else and added at a later time. But when we think of it in the term of an epilogue, which is a section or speech at the end of a book or play that serves as a comment on or a conclusion to what has happened, there is significance to John chapter 21. There's a reason why it's here in the gospel. There's a reason why John wrote it. It ties up some loose ends for us and it points us into the direction of the future. So our theme this morning is Christ calls us and empowers us to follow him. Christ calls us and empowers us to follow him. And I think that's a theme that fits what happens here in John chapter 21 nicely. There's four points this morning. The first is to acknowledge him. The second is to love him. The third is to follow him. And the fourth is to praise him. So let's look at that first point, acknowledge him. The first part of John chapter 21 sets a scene for us. It tells us that Jesus reappeared. He appeared again. He revealed himself to his disciples at the Sea of Galilee. And we're told Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples were with, uh, were there when this appearance happened. And we're told that the context of this reappearance is Peter saying, I'm going out to fish. And the other saying, we'll go with you. So they went out, and at that time you would fish at night because the nets that they had we're, we're, we're uh, too visible to be able to catch fish during the day when the fish could see the net. So they would go out at night so that they could catch fish in the net because the, the net would be less visible than at night. So early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples didn't realize that it was Jesus. Um, most likely, this is not like the road to Emmaus where Jesus is walking along with these two disciples and we're told that they were kept from recognizing him but in reality it's just they're out on the sea of galilee 
and it's, uh, it's dawn, the sun is coming up, and the visibility is not that great, and they just can't tell who exactly this person is on the shore. Now, there's been a lot of conversation about John chapter 21 and this concept that Peter says, I'm going to go fishing. As if to say that this is sort of uh, Peter turning away from the life that Jesus called him to, going back to his old way of life going to go back to being a fisherman rather than a fisher of men. And I don't think um, I don't think we should be too hard on Peter here. What I think this really is communicating is that there are they are in this unique stage of redemptive history where they have seen the resurrected savior where the savior has told them that the spirit is coming yet they don't sense or totally understand the power and what they are going to be called to, the mission that they are going to accomplish. And they don't have that empowerment yet, so um, they're just sort of in limbo. They're waiting. And so what do men who used to be fishermen do to kill some time? Let's go fishing. Let's go fishing. So Jesus is on the shore and he calls out to them, friends. The word is actually the Greek word for children, paideia. And it would be much like our terminology today. Hey guys. Or, as they say over in uh, the UK, lads. Hey, guys. And the question is a question asked, much like the NIV translates here, with the anticipation of a negative answer. Haven't you any fish? We've been told that they caught nothing. Now, although I don't think we can look into that too much and through the spiritual lens, I think it's okay to say that as they're in this, fray, this phase between the resurrected Savior and what they're going to be called to do and the power of the Holy Spirit to be the mission, the church on mission, apart from Christ, they can do nothing. And so the God-ordained catching of nothing is meant to spark their thinking. To say this path of life is an empty path of life. It's not what we're called to do. We are going to be moving on to something else. And Jesus said, friends, lads, guys, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. And so he said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. And at this point, what all they're doing is, is taking a, a, a friendly suggestion from some guy yelling off the end of the boat. Have you ever been fishing with somebody who thinks they know all about fishing? And they'd say, hey, why don't you do this or why don't you try that? Here, Jesus is just saying, hey, why don't you try 
throwing it on the other side of the boat, and they think he's just some random guy on the shore, and they're like, hey, we've been trying to fish all night and haven't caught on anything. What's it going to hurt? Let's do what this guy says, right? But when they do that, and they catch so many fish, it's very likely that this reminded him of a previous moment, the moment at the beginning of their discipleship when they didn't catch anything and Jesus said, throw your net on the other side of the boat and they brought in a haul so big that it was sinking the boat. They were trying to bring the fish in the boat. It was sinking the boat. And it's in that moment that John, the disciple whom Jesus loved, said to Peter, it's the Lord. They recognized him. And of course, as we have come to understand and know Peter's personality, he's uh, the one who's quick to act without thinking. The one who likes to slice people's ears off. The one who likes to stand up and say, No, Lord, I'll never do that. Peter puts his clothes back on and jumps into the water and swims to shore. And the other disciples followed, towing the net full of fish back up to shore, where they have this moment, this interaction between them and the risen Savior. And it's an interaction that speaks a lot to the character of Christ, his provision for his people, his nature as a servant. When they landed, they saw a fire burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus made him breakfast. And he tells them, bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore, and it was full of large fish, 153. And you know what? There are so many fun and interesting translations or understandings of why the fish are numbered 153 down through history. My favorite one is, uh, is Jerome, uh, that uh, church father. He, Jerome looked at a... a, a, a uh, Contemporary of his in the Greek world, who said that in their in his writings that there was 153 different varieties of of fish, species of fish, and so Jerome took 153 here to mean that that this calling from Jesus was that these disciples were going to go out and they were going to catch fish from every tribe, tongue, nation, and that's what the 153 meant. Another one is that there's a passage in Ezekiel that talks about the waters rising out of the temple and fish going into all these different lakes, all the way down even to the, 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 the Dead Sea, the Red Sea, the, salt, the, the Sea of Salt, and, and all these fish. And if you take these two words of nations that are named in that passage and you do Hebrew numerology, the number that that adds up to is 153. Would you believe that? And so what 
they were saying is that that 153 stands for that passage in Ezekiel that talks about these, these lakes becoming uh, vibrant lakes filled with fish. And it was talking about the, uh, the, uh, the fact that the gospel was going to go out to the nations. Now, the fact that the disciples were going to go out and preach the gospel. And people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are going to come to know Jesus Christ. Is a true statement. What 153 fish in this passage has to do with that? We can't be certain. And I think we have to be very careful when we do numerology. It's very likely that the reason why John took the time to mention that there was 153 fish was because it was such a big catch. It was significant enough for them to count it to see how many they actually brought in. And that's it. That's it. But here the disciples walk up to Jesus who's got a fire and he's got some fish and he's got some bread cooking for them. They've been working all night. They're hungry. They're, they're starving. They, the, the fish probably smells good. The bread looks so good. And he says to them, come and have breakfast. Come and have breakfast. I think what is so Amazing about this moment is that it tells us, it communicates to us the imminence of our God, the closeness of our God. I mean, think about it. If, if all we ever talked about God was that he was entirely other, that before there was anything, there was him, and he's always existed from all eternity. He has no beginning. He has no end. There are no other gods before him. Everything that he has ordained shall come to pass, and nothing shall come to pass that he does not understand the reason for or why, that he is omnipresent, that he is omnibenevolent. That he is omniscient, all-knowing. That he is all-powerful. All these things. If all we talked about was that, this God that we know who has revealed himself in his word would seem so far from us. How could we ever relate to him? How could we ever understand him? How could we ever see him or, or understand him or even come close to him? And here is Jesus Christ. In his resurrected glory. On the shore of the Sea of Galilee. Making breakfast for his disciples. Come. Come and have breakfast. You understand that, right? That we have a God that says, come and have breakfast. 
And what I think that communicates to us is the significance of what we deem insignificant moments. This is a resurrected Jesus Christ. One whom should be dead and buried. And here he is making breakfast for his disciples. And that's why we have this statement. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Why is this here that they would say, Who are you? Because there is something so displacing. There is something so out of the ordinary with sitting on the seashore with a man who should be dead, whom they saw die, who was buried, who is now risen from the dead, on the seashore making them breakfast. There's something out of the ordinary about it, extraordinary about it. It's not that they didn't know that it was Jesus. It was that they wanted to say, is it really you? Is this really happening? Am I dreaming? But it really is happening. Because Jesus really is alive. And we're called to acknowledge him. So he came and he took bread and he gave it to them. And he did the same with the fish. And we're told this is the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. He had other appearances, but this is the third time that he appeared to his disciples as a group with them by themselves. So let's acknowledge him. What about love him? There's this famous passage in John 21. It's the reinstatement of Peter. Because when they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, and what happens here is three questions, three answers, three charges. Three questions, three answers, three charges. And what we need to understand about this moment is that there was a public denial that Peter made of Jesus. And so if Peter is to take his place in prominence and leadership in the disciples, there has to be a public reinstatement, a reassurance from Jesus that Peter is called to be his disciple. Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon Barjona, Simon son of John, do you truly love me more than these? Who are these? Do you truly love me more than these other disciples? And it seems like maybe an odd question for Jesus to ask in the presence of the other disciples, do you love me more than these? But it's important that we remember what Peter often did when asked in situations, when told what would happen. Peter said, Jesus, all these people may leave you, but I'll never leave you. I'll stand by your side. I will defend you. I'll go to the grave for you. I'll go to death for you. Right? Peter is the one who is pridefully boastful about his commitment to the Lord Jesus. And when that prideful boastful commitment was tested he 
faltered. So this question Jesus is asking is pertinent. It's pertinent to the pride that Peter had shown in the past. Do you truly love me more than these? First question. Second question. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Third question. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Now, uh, for the longest time, I grew up with an understanding of these uh, three questions being significant based on the Greek word that was used in the translation. The first time that Jesus asks, do you love me more than these, he uses the word agape. And then, following that, he uses the word phileo. But then when I was in seminary, I had to read this book by Don Carson called Exegetical Fallacies. And I discovered that, that this very interpretation is the exegetical fallacy called the etymological fallacy. Now the truth of the matter is, Greek words have a wide range of usage. And oftentimes in the scriptures, agape and phileo are used interchangeably. There's no real significance. If you've ever heard the word agape is the, is the uh, unconditional love and phileo is the brotherly love. Well, sometimes they're used interchangeably. In fact, there's one passage in 1 Timothy where uh, Paul talks about Didymus who loved the world and uses the word agape. In a negative context. So. And it's not uncommon for John to use synonyms stylistically. In fact, in this same passage, John uses different words for sheep, lamb, so forth. So what's important about these three questions is not the different word used for love, but that he asked three times. One each for Peter's denials. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Simon, son of John, do you truly love me? Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Why was Peter hurt that he asked this a third time? Because Peter understood what was happening here. Peter understood that what Jesus was doing was confronting him for each of his denials. And what Jesus was doing was affirming in Peter the forgiveness that he had for those denials and the reminder of what Jesus had said to him. Peter, 
Satan is asked to sift you as wheat. But I have prayed for you. And when you turn, encourage your brothers. See, what we don't understand about this interaction is what our world tries to communicate to us in our day and age. Our world wants us to think that failure doesn't make leaders. The leaders are those who have a perfect record, who always succeed. But what Jesus knew about Peter's denials is that made him uniquely qualified to be a humble servant leader. Because it is in those failures that we are reminded of the grace of God. And it's in those failures that we are reminded that we are not unlike other people that we lead. That we are sinners in need of grace. It's Peter's failure that would lead him to say things like he says in 1 Peter chapter 5. Elders, I appeal to you as a fellow elder. Watch over the people of God with humility. This is why after the three questions, after the three answers that Jesus gave, or that Peter gave, he gives three charges. Feed my lambs. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. See, what's interesting about these charges is that upon Peter's reinstatement, Peter is not given some sort of unique office or position as the first pope, as the first vicar of Christ and a lineage going all the way down through the ages. The charges that he's given are the charges that all in ministry are given. Take care of the people of God. Pray for them. Counsel them. Feed them with my word. Feed them with the Lord's Supper. It's simple. But it is also profound. We're called to love the Lord Jesus. We're also called to follow him. Following this reinstatement of Peter, Jesus says, I tell you the truth, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. We're supposed to follow him even if it means following him unto death. Jesus here tells Peter 
That right now, you do what you want to do. You go where you want to go. But when you are older, you will not do what you want to do. You will be led where you do not want to go. Some people have seen in the illusion of stretching out your hands of the, uh, the historical account that, that's given that Peter was crucified upside down. We don't have any uh, sincere historical verification of that. But what we do know here is that what Jesus is telling Peter is that he is called to martyrdom. That his calling in his following after Jesus is one that is going to lead to death. So follow him unto death. But also, follow him into the future. You see, Jesus didn't leave Peter with those words. You're going to be a martyr for me one day. He left him with the words, follow me. Follow me. Peter, your path is a path that leads to death for my sake. Peter, your path is a path of leadership in the church where you will feed and tend and take care of the sheep, of the lambs. But Peter, no matter what the future holds, follow me. No matter what may be upon your path, follow me. Keep your eyes set on me. Follow me into the future. Don't lose sight. Don't lose sight. Many of us are going to face challenges in this world. Many of us are going to face obstacles. And maybe it isn't martyrdom. But we're called to follow Christ. Even if it means unto death. We're called to follow Christ into the future. Knowing. Knowing that he... walks with us. You see, Peter learns his first lesson about needing to keep his eyes focused on Christ as he follows him into the future. Right off the bat, Peter turned, he saw that John was following after them. At some point, after his public reinstatement with the disciples of St. Peter and John, began to walk down the beach together, having this conversation. And uh, we're told, when Peter saw John, he asked, Hey, what about him? What about that guy? You told me what's going to happen to me. What's going to happen to him? And Jesus' answer is an answer of rebuke. An answer of, don't worry about other people. Worry about yourself. Don't compare your calling to what other people are called to. Focus upon yourself. Focus upon me. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. You must follow me. You see, it's easy to, to, get, to get derailed in our calling for the Lord when we look at other people, isn't it? I mean, it's easy for people in ministry. We do this all the time. We look 
And we go, man, look at that, John Piper. I mean, how many people download his sermons? I mean, look how many books he's written. I mean, that guy writes more books than I, have, I will even read in my lifetime. Okay? Or, or, you know, this is what I often like to do in church history. I, I like to look back and, and I go, you're telling me that John Calvin wrote his first edition of the Institutes of the Christian Religion when he was 21 years old? What am I doing with my life? Or we look at those people that have the ministries that are on the screen. They're preaching on TV and we, th- we think to ourselves, oh man, wh- wh- why, am I, why can't I do that? Why can't I accomplish that? And, and we forget and we forget to realize that we're not called to focus on what God has called that person to. We're called to focus upon Christ and what he's called us to. Now that's an example for my life, but an example for your life would be looking at other people and thinking, why is it that they didn't have children who turned away from the Lord? Why is it that they didn't have a cancer diagnosis? Why is it that they they get to have their kids stay around in this community and our kids have all moved away? Why is it that all these other things happen and and here I am in my life where I'm at right now and, and you're beginning to think about what God has called other people to and not about what God has called you to. Focus on Christ. And remember... That he has us exactly where he wants us. And what he's called us to do. We're told a little historical fact that because of this statement... There was a rumor that got spread around, around among the disciples that John wouldn't die. Because Jesus had said, if I want him to remain alive until I return, what is that to you? And John wanted to put this rumor out for a couple reasons. One, because as time went on and all the other disciples passed away, they were martyred or they died. John was the last one living. He was the youngest. And he was the longest living disciple. And people looked at his long life and began to think that he wasn't going to die. And more so, his life became connected with the return of Christ. And people began to say as John got older that Jesus is going to be coming back any time because Jesus has to come back before John dies. And so he didn't want himself to die and pass on and Jesus not to have come, come back and return and there to be discouragement and despair. Because to be honest with you, that's what happens when anybody sets a date and then it comes and it goes. I mean, I don't see any Harold Camping followers anymore. That's not what Jesus said. What Jesus was saying was, Peter, don't worry about others. Focus on me and what I've called you to. The final point is praise him. 
The last few passages of John chapter 21 tell us that what we have here is indisputable testimony. It's one that was written by John himself. This is the disciple who testifies to these things, who wrote them down. We know that his testimony is true, an eyewitness testimony account of the life of Jesus Christ in the risen Savior. We have right here in front of us. It's indisputable. It can be trusted. But it's also an incomplete testimony. We're told in verse 25, Jesus did many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have room for the books that would be written. Just because it's an incomplete testimony does not mean that it's insufficient. What John has given us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is sufficient to, as what he said, believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. But it's also, finally, an inviting testimony. We are invited to be a part of what Christ has done. By our union with him, we continue the work of Christ through his spirit. All these things tell us that Christ is worthy of the praise given him. That even the whole world would not have room for the books that could be written for what he has done. And all these things invite us in to the story that God is telling. A story of a world fallen into sin. A story of a world God loved so much that he sent his very own son. A story of a world in need of the word become flesh. A story of the son of God who came, who lived, who died, who rose again, who ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father, and who poured out his spirit upon all flesh, that we may come to know our salvation. That we may come to know our God. That we may come to know our mission. And so ends the Gospel of John. Amen. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have blessed our study of, of the book of John. And we pray, Lord, that it will have encouraged us to know more of your Son. To believe in him more. To have life in his name. To know of our salvation. To be thankful for it. And to live, not for our own sakes, but for your sake all the days of our life. In Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen.